And now to introduce, to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Abby Fry, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist with the Providence Medical Group. In her current role, Dr. Fry provides collaborative management for patients with chronic illness, including diabetes, hypertension, and osteoporosis, among others. She serves as a drug information resource for other providers and is also heavily involved with the education of internal medicine residents, pharmacy residents, and students. Dr. Fry earned her degree in chemistry from Central College in Pella, Iowa, before coming out west to attend pharmacy school at the University of Washington. She then completed her two years of residency with Providence Health and Services, including a PGY2 year in primary care with Providence Medical Group. In addition to providing direct patient care and precepting, Dr. Fry enjoys writing and editing the Clinical Pharmacy Department's Drug Information Newsletter and lecturing at the Oregon State University College of Pharmacy. I feel so fortunate to work beside Dr. Fry on a daily basis, and we're delighted to have her come teach us again today. Thanks. Thank you, Laura. Uh, thanks for that nice introduction. Excited to be back here to give uh, grand rounds. And thanks for those of you joining us in person and online. So as Laura mentioned, one of my roles as a clinical pharmacy specialist with the Providence Medical Group is writing and editing our department's newsletter, RX Hot Topics. Um, RX Hot Topics, in, we publish every six to eight weeks and seek to review relevant clinical guidelines, guideline updates, FDA updates, new drug approvals, new warnings or alerts, and also provide clinical and prescribing pearls. I will admit uh, we've struggled sometimes lately with our distribution list, so if you don't know what I'm talking about and wish you were getting RX Hot Topics, uh, please send me an email after, afterwards. We'll make sure we get you on the list. The objectives of our newsletter, as well as my grand rounds today, are to evaluate recent studies that provide pertinent information about medications, to identify emerging safety concerns with commonly prescribed drugs, and to discuss new evidence that clarifies the role of established therapies. In order to choose the topics for today's session, I looked back over the last year's worth of um, our Hot Topics newsletters and picked out five topics that I thought were particularly in interesting and broadly relevant. I'm gonna start with the TIME trial, which looked at the cardiovascular outcomes associated with taking antihypertensives either in the morning or the evening. Then we'll talk about the CLICK study, which looked at chlorthalidone for hypertension and advanced CKD. We'll take a brief look at the updated PrEP guidelines, which introduced cabotegravir, an injectable option for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. Then we'll look at the fidelity analysis, which uh, evaluated finerenone in patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD. And finally, the SURPASS-2 trial, which evaluated terzepatide versus subcutaneous semaglutide in patients with type 2 diabetes. And in between topics, I'll just treat you to some unrelated photos uh, from a recent trip to the Grand Canyon. So starting with the TIME trial, again, this sought to answer this question, does the timing of antihypertensive therapy matter? 
So what we know is that nocturnal hypertension is a significant risk factor for cardiovascular disease. There's been multiple trials that have shown folks with higher blood pressure overnight or a non-dipping pattern have an increased risk of cardiovascular events. Two trials, the MAPEC trial published in 2010 and then the Hygieia chronotherapy trial published in uh, 2020, showed substantial reductions in cardiovascular outcomes when patients were randomized to take their antihypertensive medications at bedtime. However, there was some controversy regarding the results from these trials. Both of these trials were conducted by the same research group in Spain, and the plausibility of the effect sizes was questioned by some. Um, they saw an over 50% reduction in cardiovascular outcomes with pretty low number needed to treat of 19. And some of those, uh, some experts question the plausibility of these results. And as a result, um, several other groups uh, embarked on studies seeking to either uh, uh, confirm or refute these findings. The first of these was published in uh, The Lancet in 2022. This was the TIME study. Uh, in the TIME study, they recruited adults with hypertension in the United Kingdom who were taking at least one blood pressure medication Folks taking blood pressure medications that required twice daily administration um, or folks that worked the night shift were excluded. And in total, over 21,000 adults with hypertension were randomly assigned to take their usual medications either in the morning between 6 and 10 a.m. or in the evening between 8 and midnight. The primary outcome was cardiovascular death or hospitalization for non-fatal or non-fatal, or excuse me, non-fatal MI or non-fatal stroke. And the median follow-up was 5.2 years. Primary endpoint events occurred in 3.7% of patients assigned to the morning group and just 3.4% of patients assigned to the evening group with a hazard ratio of 0.95. There was also no difference in all-cause mortality or other secondary outcomes. So in summary, the findings from this trial um, show that timing probably doesn't improve outcomes for the broader population. This study did not look at specifically patients who are identified to have nocturnal hypertension. This was just a broad general population of folks with hypertension. And in that broad population, taking medication in the evening was not harmful, but it also provided no additional benefit uh, compared to morning dosing. However, evening dosing or kind of mandating or recommending evening dosing might affect adherence. Other previous studies have found that evening dosing is generally associated with worse medication adherence. So my takeaway is that we should focus on what matters. We should focus on choosing good blood pressure lowering medications, long acting medications that require just once daily administration when possible, using combo uh, pills when possible to reduce pill burden, and then trying to support our patients with good adherence. And for some patients that might mean taking their blood pressure medications at night, if that's the time that they can be most consistent with them. But for others who morning dosing works better, I think that would be just fine. And then focusing on treating to our, our treatment goals that have been shown to improve cardiovascular outcomes. There are a couple other related trials. The BedMed trial and the BedMed Frail trial are two studies being uh, conducted in Canada that are similar to this UK, UK trial. Um, and the results are still pending for those, but I think that would really solidify this finding um, depending on those results. Okay. Next up, let's talk about the CLICK trial. The CLIP trial looked at chlorthalidone for hypertension and advanced CKD. 
So what we know is that hypertension is often poorly controlled, especially in people with advanced CKD. And due to their um, uh, comorbid advanced CKD, we're often limited in what drugs we can use. We also know that chlorothaladone has demonstrated benefits not just for blood pressure lowering, but also target organ damage in, a, in the general population in studies from like Allhat, SHEP, and SPRINT. However, clinical opinion and guidelines have previously recommended against the use of thiazides when EGFR is less than 30 due to concerns about inefficacy. And I know that I certainly have made the recommendation to switch to a loop diuretic um, from a thiazide when, when EGFR is very low in order to get more efficacy. In an attempt to refute the dogma that thiazides lose effectiveness at this low EGFR, Investigators uh, at three uh, academic um, hospitals in Indiana conducted the CLICK study. They enrolled 160 adults with stage four CKD, defined as EGFR of 15 to 29, who had uncontrolled hypertension and were already on at least one blood pressure lowering medication. They randomly assigned these participants to either receive chlorthalidone or matching placebo for 12 weeks. Clorthalidone was started at a dose of 12.5 milligrams a day, and then the dose was doubled every four weeks to a max of 50 milligrams a day if home systolic blood pressure remained over 135 over 85. And the primary outcome in this case was a change in 24-hour ambulatory systolic blood pressure after 12 weeks. Looking at the participants in this trial, the mean age was 66 years. The majority were male. One of the hospitals was a VA uh, uh, hospital, which might have led to this. There was good representation of both uh, white and black patients with 40% uh, of the population being black. And then the majority had diabetes. The mean EGFR was 23, and the median urinary albumin creatinine ratio was 862. Participants were on an average of 3.4 antihypertensives at baseline, which I think also shows the difficulty in controlling hypertension in this population. 60% were on an Eastern ARB, 60% were on a loop diuretic, nearly all 75% were on a beta blocker, and 65% were on a calcium channel blocker. And at 12 weeks, glorthalidone was associated with a really significant decrease in systolic blood pressure with an 11-point decrease. It also showed a significant reduction in the urinary albumin creatinine ratio of 50%. As expected, kind of all of the adverse effects we know clorthalidone is associated with did occur more in the clorthalidone group. So there was more hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, hyponatremia, hyperglycemia, reversible increases in serum creatinine, and dizziness. Taking a closer look at these results, as I mentioned, the chlorothalidone could be increased to a max dose of 50, but you can see that the mean dose at the end of the 12 weeks was 23.1, so that, that chlorothalidone was generally not increased to that max dose. And you can see that at four weeks, you really saw the bulk of the blood pressure lowering with nine-point systolic reduction at that starting dose of 12.5. And I think this uh, suggests that low dose is effective, especially in, here in these patients with advanced CKD, and might be the safest dose in order to prevent the adverse effects or to minimize the risk of the adverse effects that we uh, are associated with chlorthalidone. So in summary, chlorthalidone is an effective antihypertensive even in patients with advanced CKD. 
However, it's certainly not a prescribe and forget situation. Careful monitoring is required in order to ensure safe use in this population. We need to be monitor monitoring serum creatinine, potassium, magnesium, and sodium, and repleting or adjusting therapy as needed. Although the reduction in blood pressure and the reduction in the urinary albumin creatinine ratio were impressive, um, the study was too small and too short to evaluate those hard clinical outcomes that we know are so important. Okay, moving on to the updated PrEP guidelines. The CDC released updated PrEP guidelines at the end of 2021, um, around the same time that cabotegravir was approved for use in PrEP. 35,000 people in the United States received a new HIV diagnosis in 2019. Um, HIV continues to disproportionately affect people of color with 74% of new diagnoses in people who were not white. In particular, 42% of all new diagnoses were in black or African-American individuals with 27% of new diagnoses in Hispanic and Latino individuals. In order to decrease the rate of HIV transmission, it is really critical to educate patients on the availability of PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. Historically, there have been two oral daily options Emtricitabine and tenofovir, or Truvada in its generics, which was approved for PrEP over 10 years ago in 2012. And then more recently, the Emtricitabine tenofovir alafenamide preparation, or TAF, which is um, sold on the brand name Discovy, which was approved for PrEP in 2019. Cabotegravir, or cabot Tegravir long-acting is a long-acting integrase strand inhibitor, which is administered via gluteal IM injection every two months. You can use an oral 28-day lead-in with oral cabotegravir. Uh, this is really recommended for uh, individuals who are worried about side effects, but severe adverse effects are extremely, extremely rare, as we'll look at here in a minute. Um, so the oral lead-in is not mandated or required. You can just start with the injectable option. The efficacy of cabotegravir for PrEP was demonstrated in two trials, HPTN-83 and HPTN-84. In HPTN-83, 4,500 cisgender men and transgender women were randomized to receive the long-acting cabotegravir or the emtricitabine tenofovir preparation or Truvada. There were 52 participants who acquired HIV after enrollment, 13 in the cabotegravir arm and 39 in the uh, Truvada arm for a 66% lower risk of HIV in the cabotegravir arm. Inadequate adherence to the daily oral option seemed to drive this finding. We know from previous studies that when taken as prescribed, emtricitabine tenofovir is 99% effective for PrEP. However, um, in this study, when they when they looked at adherence rates, adherence rates were low in those in the folks that acquired HIV in the oral daily arm. In HP, HPTN84, over 3,000 individuals who were assigned female sex at birth in Sub-Saharan Africa were randomized to the long-acting injectable cabotegravir or the emtricitabine tenofovir. 
And again, in this case, we saw a superiority with the long-acting cabotegravir. There were 40 participants who acquired HIV after enrollment, four in the cabotegravir arm and 36 in the emtricitabine tenofovir arm, meaning that HIV risk was 88% lower in the cabotegravir arm. And again, poor adherence to the daily oral option seemed to drive this finding. They found poor or non-adherence in 35 of their 36 cases um, in which HIV was acquired in the tenofovir arm. In both of these trials, uh, as I said, severe adverse effects were very rare. The most common was injection site reactions were, were, were relatively common, 81% in the first trial, 38% in the second trial. However, these were rarely severe and rarely resulted in treatment discontinuation. So looking at our PrEP options and the pros and cons of them, so our traditional kind of first approved in 2012 option, which is Truvada in its generics, one of the big pros is the generics are available, which substantially reduces the cost of this option. The emtricitabine tenofovir option has also been studied on, for an on-demand PrEP or 211 in select patients, specifically in men who have sex with men. However, it is contraindicated if creatinine clearance is less than 60, and as a result, renal monitoring is required. And again, as we pointed out in the previous studies, daily adherence is required. It's highly effective if taken daily, um, but as we can see, less effective when poor or non-adherence is a factor. More recently, the emtricitabine TAF um, option, or Descovy, was approved for PrEP in 2019. The advantage or difference between the two is not efficacy. Uh, the Descovy option was shown to be non-inferior as compared to the Truvada option. The difference is that the tenofovir alafenamide option is less likely to cause kidney or bone problems in patients. So it might be a good option for folks with reduced clean, uh, renal clearance or have a history of osteoporosis. However, it's not it has not been as well studied. Specifically, it has not been studied in those assigned female sex at birth, so it should not be used in those populations. Renal monitoring is still required because it's contraindicated if creatinine clearance is less than 30. And it's also been shown to have some negative effects on lipids, so annual lipid monitoring is also required. It once again requires daily adherence, which can be a barrier, um, and it is not generically available, so it is very expensive the monthly cost of around $2,000 cash price. And then finally, our most recent option, cabotegravir, the injectable long-acting cabotegravir specifically. This obviously does not require daily adherence. Again, after, after a, a kind of run-in phase where you do it once um, for the first two months, then it's every two months, so just six injections per year ongoing. Um, although it does not require daily adherence, patients do need to be adherent to those appointments. It's a medication that's administered at a clinic visit. There's no renal or lipid monitoring required, which is a big plus. Injection site reactions are common, but usually not severe. There's been some concern about this class of medications causing weight gain, but significant weight gain was not seen in the trials that I reviewed previously. Um, however, the, the cost is high with an annual cost of over $20,000. So in summary, the guidelines call for us to inform all sexually active adults and adolescents about PrEP. We should offer PrEP to any patient at substantial risk for HIV 
or any patient who requests it, even if we cannot identify a specific risk factor for those patients. So basically we should not withhold PrEP from anybody who is interested in it. Before prescribing PrEP, it's important to confirm that the individual does not have HIV and should also screen for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis if they are sexually active. And then if considering oral PrEP, it's important and required to uh, assess their renal function before initiation. The cabotegravir long-acting injections can and should be considered for folks who have it had issue with adherence to oral daily PrEP or those who prefer to get an injection every two months instead of taking oral daily PrEP. And finally, those who have a creatinine clearance less than 30, which prevents the use of oral PrEP options. Here at Providence, our pharmacotherapy clinics uh, can help us uh, both with the administration and the um, procurement of uh, cabotegravir long-acting for PrEP. Next up is the fidelity analysis. This analysis evalu evaluated finerenone in patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD. Finerenone is a novel, uh, selective, non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, which is approved for use in adults with CKD associated with type 2 diabetes. Non-steroidal MRAs are more selective for the mineralocorticoid receptor, and they have a lower risk of hyperkalemia as compared to the steroidal options such as spironolactone. Finerenone was evaluated in two uh, kind of parallel studies, the Fidelio-CKD and the Figaro-DKD trial. These trials looked at adults with type 2 diabetes and CKD who were receiving a maximum tolerated dose of a RAS inhibitor, and had a serum creatinine of 4.8 or less, and, were, and these patients were randomized to finerenone 10 to 20 milligrams a day versus placebo. The fidelity analysis pooled these two studies in order to get a broader um, population of folks with diabetic kidney disease. In total, there were 13,000 patients with a median age of 65 years, uh, majority male with 70% male, the mean EGFR was 57, with a median urinary albumin creatinine ratio of over 500. Nearly half of these patients had a history of ASCVD. The mean A1C was 7.7, with a mean systolic blood pressure of 136, so fairly well-controlled diabetes and blood pressure. Um, and patients with HEFREF were specifically excluded. Based on inclusion criteria and standard of care, Nearly everyone was on a RAS inhibitor. About three quarters were on a statin. At the time these studies were started, SGLT2 inhibitors were not standard of care for treatment of CKD. So a pretty small percentage, just 6.7% were on an SGLT2 inhibitor at baseline. And then that increased as the studies went on, um, as we got more evidence regarding the SGLT2 inhibitors. So a total of 15% of patients took an SGLT2 inhibitor at some point during the trial. They looked at two uh, primary outcomes, a composite cardiovascular outcome, which included cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke, as well as a composite kidney outcome, which was made up of kidney failure, renal death, or a sustained uh, decline in EGFR of over 
And as you can see here, both of those were found to be significant with the finerenone group. So there was a reduction in that composite cardiovascular outcome with a number needed to treat of 59, and also a reduction in the composite kidney outcome with a number needed to treat of 63. And this was over a median follow-up of three years. There was also a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations and of end-stage kidney disease uh, alone. Hyperkalemia was more common, only rarely required permanent treatment discontinuation. Just 1.7% of patients had to discontinue treatment due to hyperkalemia and rarely required hospitalization with less than 1%. In most cases, hyperkalemia that was observed was managed by just stopping the drug briefly and then using dietary reduction, sometimes um, diuretics in order to manage. A subgroup analysis that was published in Diabetes Care just last year um, found that finerenone provided cardiorenal benefit regardless of SGLT2 use. So in folks that were on an SGLT2 inhibitor, the um, finerenone seemed to be at least as beneficial um, and perhaps additive in terms of the cardiovascular risk reduction. So looking at place and therapy, I'll turn to the ADA standards of care that were um, just recently published. The ADA recommends that for people with type 2 diabetes and CKD with albuminuria treated with a maximum tolerated dose of an ACE inhibitor or ARB, the addition of finerenone is recommended to improve cardiovascular outcomes and reduce the risk of CKD progression, the level of evidence A. And then looking at the Cadigo 2022 guidelines, they place SGLT2 inhibitors and RAS inhibitors as first-line drug therapy. They uh, mentioned that the reason that SGLT2 inhibitors garner first-line drug therapy is due to kind of more significant and broader evidence regarding this class of drugs. And then if folks have persistent albuminuria and normal potassium, so again, that's potassium of 4.8 or less after treatment with maximum tolerated RAS inhibitor and after treatment SGLT2 inhibitor, then finerenone should be considered in order to reduce that risk. So in summary, we should be considering finerenone for persistent albuminuria despite maximal tolerated RAS blockade and plus or minus SGLT2 inhibitor use. Uh, finerenone might uh, be added to just RAS inhibitor if folks are um, have tried and failed an SGLT2 inhibitor, can't tolerate it, or are inappropriate for it. This is another drug that we can't just prescribe and forget. In order to have that acceptable safety profile that we saw in the Figaro and Fidelio trials, we need to make sure we're not starting this in folks with elevated potassium. So the trials use that 4.8 or greater. And then in the trials, potassium was checked one month after initiation and then every four months after that, which I think really allowed for them to use it safely and see that really low rate of severe hyperkalemia. So this is what I'd certainly recommend in practice. Um, you don't have to expect or worry about a significant blood pressure reduction, unlike our steroidal MRAs like spironolactone, which are first-line therapy for resistant hypertension and can be associated with really significant blood pressure reduction. Franerinone only modestly reduced blood pressure with an average of three points systolic. 
Cost and coverage may certainly be a barrier, and I think is why um, we're seeing very little use of finerenone in practice. This is yet another expensive drug to add uh, to patients. The cash price is over $600 a month, and prior authorization will likely be required. Uh, the prior auths that I've uh, seen for it require the patient to be on maximally tolerated RAS blockade and an SGLT2 inhibitor before finerenone will be covered. That's not always the PA criteria, of course, um, but I think prior authorization is likely. Um, and then I think we are still waiting um, for some additional evidence. It's unknown if the beneficial effects associated with SGLT2 inhibitor and finerenone are additive due to differences in mechanism of action. I think that's plausible, but we don't have that evidence yet. And then we also don't have evidence regarding the use of finerenone in patients with non-diabetic CKD. Turning to our last topic, the SURPASS-2 trial. This looked at terzepatide versus subcutaneous semaglutide in patients with type 2 diabetes. So we all know that GLP-1 receptor agonists are an effective treatment for type 2 diabetes, and some have been associated with uh, cardiovascular disease benefit. And this is why our treatment guidelines for type 2 diabetes call for the use of GLP-1 agonists with that cardiovascular disease benefit in individuals regardless of A1C, if they have a history of cardiovascular disease or at a very high risk of cardiovascular disease, and also recommend them for use in folks who um, preferentially over insulin and patients who need to advance to injectable therapy for additional A1C lowering. Terzepatide is a novel dual glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, or GIP, and GLP-1 receptor agonists. And the idea is that the GLP-1 and GIP will be synergistic and provide additional A1C lowering and additional weight loss. If you attended last week's excellent grand rounds, you heard about terzepatide uh, a little bit because it is currently being considered by the FDA for treatment of obesity, but currently it is approved by the FDA for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. In the SURPASS-2 study, they evaluated terzepatide versus our currently best-in-class um, GLP-1 agonist, which is semaglutide. Nearly 2,000 adults with type 2 diabetes who had inadequate control, so A1C of 7 or greater, on metformin, and at least metformin of 1,500 milligrams a day, were randomized. The mean age of these patients was 57 years, about half were female, Majority were whites, so an underrepresentation here of um, people of color. The mean A1C was 8.3%, and the mean BMI is 34. So a pretty kind of classic population of folks with type 2 diabetes, certainly similar to a lot of patients I see. These individuals were randomized to one of three doses of terzepatide. So individuals are started at a dose of 2.5 and then titrated up to 5, 10, or 15 milligrams. And then the fourth arm was semaglutide, started at the starting dose and then titrated up to, um, at the time of this study, the max dose of one milligram a week. I will mention that we um, now have evidence to support the use of semaglutide up to two milligrams a week. Um, but at the time of this study, this was the maximum dose. This was a 40-week trial. The primary income, uh, excuse me, income, outcome was change in A1C at the end of these 40 weeks, and the secondary outcome was change in body weight at the end of 40 weeks. So looking at the results, 
And the blue bars are uh, terzepatide at doses of 5, 10, and 15 milligrams, with the green bar being semaglutide. And you can see a dose response um, of A1C lowering in the terzepatide arms with the highest uh, A1C lowering of 2.3% with terzepatide 15 milligrams. The semaglutide 1 milligram was associated with an A1C lowering of 1.86, which is similar to what we've seen in practice in other clinical trials. All of the doses of terzepatide were non-inferior and superior to semaglutide with regards to A1C lowering. However, I will, I think, question the clinical significance of a 1.86 versus 2.0 A1C lowering. Um, so I think in general, I would consider kind of similar A1C lowering, maybe a little bit better. In terms of change in body weight, you can also see a dose response. So the highest uh, reduction in body weight was with the highest dose of terzepatide, 15 milligrams. That was associated with an 11 kilo weight loss compared to about a six kilo weight loss with semaglutide one milligram. And certainly that is a clinically significant difference in, in weight loss. But again, this is the um, semaglutide one milligram strength. Um, we now have approval and evidence for use of up to two milligrams. And I think weight loss there would be a little bit more similar, but it does seem like the terzepatide has an edge with regards to weight loss in these patients with type two diabetes. In terms of adverse effects, the most common adverse events were gastrointestinal related, which is not surprising given the mechanism. We're very familiar with these side effects related to GLP-1 agonists. Uh, the most common was nausea, these two seem to be dose related. So the highest dose of terzepatide had the highest rates of nausea up to 22%. So fairly common vomiting in up to 10% of patients and diarrhea in up to 16% of patients. In the trial and in practice, the GI-related adverse events related with these agents, terzepatide and our other GLP-1s, are primarily mild to moderate, primarily transient um, with initiation or dose titration which then improve with continued use. But I certainly know from my practice that they can be severe and dose limiting for some patients. Um, and so it is something that requires counseling and certainly monitoring to ensure safe use. Other adverse effects were, were rare, um, but we can see things like um, acute kidney injury if the patient is vomiting and getting dehydrated. So a lot of the ad other adverse effects that we sometimes can see are kind of relate back to the GI related events. So in summary, regarding terzepatide versus semaglutide, similar A1C lowering, technically um, by statistics, it was more A1C lowering with terzepatide, but I think clinically I consider them somewhat similar, but certainly more, seemingly more weight loss with terzepatide as compared to the best in class uh, semaglutide. Same low risk of hypoglycemia. However, when, when these drugs, terzepatide or any of our other GLP-1s are added to a patient with type 2 diabetes who's already on a medication that can cause hypoglycemia, such as insulin, such as a sulfonylurea, that background therapy may need to be adjusted to prevent hypoglycemia. So on their own, very low risk, but when added to other background therapy, you can see some hypoglycemia if you don't adjust those medications. Terzepatide has the same contraindications and precautions as the GLP-1s that we're familiar with. So they should not be used in anybody with a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer or multiple and endocrine neoplasia syndrome type 2. Cautious use is recommended in folks with a history of pancreatitis, gallbladder disease, or diabetic retinopathy as well. 
Um, an interesting uh, kind of difference um, in the terzepatide that I've recently seen is that its uh, product insert and labeling uh, indicates that it can reduce the uh, absorption and therefore efficacy of oral birth control due to its reduction in gastric um, transit time. And so that would be something that we should be considering um, in folks who are using contraception to prevent pregnancy. They have the same high cost. Um, I should say terzepatide has the same high cost as the GLP-1s. Um, these are very expensive medications, over a thousand or around a thousand dollars a month cash price, um, and prior authorization will likely be required. And I think one of the biggest things that is kind of preventing or, or um, should hold this off on using terzepatide frequently in practice is the lack of cardiovascular outcomes uh, data. So three of our GLP-1 agonists that we've had, uh, subcutaneous semaglutide, liraglutide, and dulaglutide have all shown reduction in cardiovascular disease. Uh, we don't have that evidence yet with terzepatide. Its cardiovascular outcomes trial is in progress. Uh, it's being compared to an active comparator, dulaglutide, uh, but those results are expected next year. So that brings me to the conclusion of today's topics. Um, we looked at the time trial, looking at cardiovascular outcomes associated with taking antihypertensives in the morning versus the evening. The CLICK trial, which looked at chlorthalidone and for hypertension and advanced CKD and showed great benefit in terms of blood pressure lowering. Looked at the new PrEP guidelines, which include cabotegravir and a long-acting injectable option that can be considered, especially for individuals who struggle with adherence to the oral daily options or um, cannot use the oral daily options due to renal function. The fidelity analysis, which looked at the efficacy and um, outcomes of finerenone in patients with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. And then finally, um, the SURPASS-2 trial looking at terzepatide. So with that, I left plenty of time for questions today, which is great. So hopefully there's lots of them. I thank you for coming and hopefully there's lots of good questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Fry. And you are quite wise because there are several questions. Oh, <laughs> um, that maybe we can rattle through a few um, from our online audience first, and then I'll gather from here in the room. Um, going back to your first topic, the click trial with chlorthalidone, um, uh, question emerged, um, would ARB prescribing twice daily likely be better dosing? Any comments on ARBs twice daily? Specifically in CKD, I think um, depending on the ARB, um, they, I, I preferentially, when I get the choice, um, prefer to choose a long-acting second-generation ARB, such as Olmosartan or Herbosartan, which I think based on their half-life and duration um, can get good efficacy with once-a-day or once-a-day dosing. Um, Losartan um, are kind of our first ARB, first to go to generic, so as a result often used, um, but is shorter-acting, and I think there would be uh, utility to dosing it twice a day or changing it to a longer-acting uh, product. Great, many thanks. Um, and now regarding the finerenone, um, can you comment on any idea of time to benefit with those with a life expectancy, for example, less than three years likely benefit? Great question. Um, and not one I don't know if I can answer intelligently off the top of my head. I think based on our available evidence that in that trial being three years in length, um, I think it would be hard to say that we're going to 
definitely see benefit earlier than that. Um, hopefully we can get more more information on that because I think that's certainly certainly relevant in folks that have more advanced CKD um, and, and lifespan might be shorter. Great, thank you. And I'll take one last online question, um, slightly broader topic. Um, any comments that you would have in general regarding the off-label use of metformin and particularly benefits or potential dangers? Oh, the off-label use of metformin for... Yeah, I'm clear <laughs> from our question. Um, it sounds as though it's weight loss, longevity, seem to be some of the indications. Pre-diabetes. I'd say, um, I mean, certainly there's evidence, and I think pretty good evidence, of use for, for metformin for pre-diabetes. Um, and I think one of the things I like about metformin is it's long, you know, we have lots of experience with it. I think I feel very good about its safety profile. Um, you know, the most common thing we're going to see, assuming it's well tolerated long term, is potential for B12 deficiency, which is easily monitored for and, and treated if need be. Um, so for prediabetes, yes, I don't think there's a lot of evidence regarding its use for for pure weight loss unless there are comorbid conditions such as prediabetes or PCOS involved. Um, I don't know, you're talking to a proponent of metformin. I spend a lot of my time <laughs> uh, convincing and encouraging patients to stay on their metformin when we're treating their diabetes. So I don't have a lot of negative things, but I, I think kind of I also would tend to stay with the evidence and unless there is a comorbid condition where we have benefit, I'm not sure we'd be gaining much. Thank you, Dr. Fry. Um, just a couple of questions on a couple of the topics. Great. The first one I was going to ask about is in PrEP and the Cabot Tiger Veer. So it sounds like the long acting uh, sub Q formulations, or IM, ended up having some people still get HIV. Did they comment on the subgroup that was adherent to oral being superior to the IM at all? Do you know? Um, they did not. They did not. I did not see that kind of post hoc analysis of looking at kind of they they were assessing adherence and like levels of, of the tenofovir, so that might be available. I did not. I did not see that. Um, but as you mentioned, there were a few cases uh, in each group or in each trial of kind of breakthrough infections with the cabotegravir arm, whereas in previous trials with um, Emtricitabine tenofovir, as I said, is 99% effective when adherence was high. Um, so I think you could probably argue that maybe uh, uh, in in those kind of perfect conditions that the oral daily option is very, very effective. If people can take a once daily medication, we know that. Um, I think the, the utility is really for folks who can't, because then we have clearly seen that it's ineffective when they're taken less than, you know, two, three doses a, a week. Thank you. Yeah. And then the other one was going to the time trial. Um, in my past few years, I have definitely been pushing people to do nighttime dosing. And okay. I guess, did they make any discussion or comment on five years being enough time to mm -hmm. see any difference? Yeah, great question. Um, I will I will say same. Uh, first of all, uh, I've uh, wrote a previous hot topics about the Hygieia chronotherapy trial and the with the take home of let's take you know tell our patients to take their medications at night because that all seemed like a little a pretty low risk intervention and maybe it reduced the risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, 
they did they did not comment on kind of that five year duration. Um, I would have to remind myself kind of the duration of the the follow up for the previous trials that showed showed those substantial reductions. I think comparing it to other cardiovascular outcomes trials, I think five years is kind of in the ballpark of where where we've seen other drugs, um, kind of other interventions have have a benefit. Um, and then again, like I like I mentioned, what what question that. Um, study does not answer is when folks have nocturnal hypertension. For example, if we identify that they're non-dipper or have nocturnal hypertension with a 24-hour blood pressure monitor, is there a benefit of adjusting their therapy to change that pattern? Uh, we don't have evidence to say there's there's a benefit in that case, but this also didn't answer um, that question. I think kind of plausibility that, that seems still reasonable, but kind of in that general population, if we don't have any evidence that they have nocturnal hypertension, we're just trying to treat hypertension, there doesn't seem to be a clear benefit of, of taking it at night. Wondering about the uh, indications for PrEP therapy in the non-sexually active population. Yes. PrEP is um, recommended and should be offered to anybody who's using injectable, injecting drugs that are not prescribed to them. That it's indicated for, that would be considered a substantial risk for HIV. If you're injecting drugs that aren't prescribed, you should be offered PrEP. Great, thank you, Dr. Fry. Another question here in the room. Uh, Abby, this might be off topic and a whole lecture that you haven't prepared <laughs> for, but maybe I was reading about the Inflation Reduction Act over the next few years. It's going to reduce insulin cost, cap yep. insulin costs. It's going to yep. make some. Uh, uh, immunizations free that currently mm -hmm. aren't, but it's also going to cap out-of-pocket costs True. for Medicare patients. And I wonder if it's obvious to you how that's going to open some doors for us. Should we be on the alert already for things we can do that we will be able to do mm -hmm. that we can't do now for yeah. folks on Medicare? I think that's a great question and certainly something I'm excited about. Um, so currently, um, insulin uh, costs are capped uh, for everyone with Medicare at uh, $35 a month out of pocket, and that's regardless of which um, phase they're in. So whether they're an initial phase or the uh, donut hole or coverage gap or the catastrophic phase, the insulin uh, costs are going to be capped or are capped uh, starting this year for everyone. And then my understanding is that out-of-pocket costs for medications are going to be capped at $2,000 starting in 2025 is, I believe, the year I saw that happening, which is mind-blowing um, to me, um, given the cost of some of these medications and the fact that we're often recommending them, the people with these comorbid conditions and that have CKD or have heart failure um, and are, are indicated for SGLT2s or GLP-1s or for Naranone that we talked about today. Um, I think it certainly is going to, if that is true, I always have a hard time believing that until it happens, until I see it at the pharmacy for the patient. Um, but if that's true, I th certainly think that's going to open open the doors for us to, to follow the evidence and follow of the guidelines for some of these high cost um, options. Pardon my ignorance on the topic, but uh, <laughs> I think I'm underutilizing the pharmacotherapy clinics. Mm. And I wonder if you could tell a little bit more about uh, how we can take advantage of those. Yeah, great question. Um, I will try to do my best if somebody in the room <laughs> or, or online um, 
is one of the, the many pharmacists that work in the pharmacotherapy clinics, they might correct me. But our pharmacotherapy clinics um, were kind of born out of our anti-coag clinics, um, and they uh, can support us with treatment of hep C. That is really where they started. Um, they also are now supporting us with the treatment of osteoporosis when we're using um, kind of our more expensive uh, medications such as Perlia or some of our anabolic agents. Um, and then they uh, they help the specialty clinics with things like rheumatoid arthritis, I believe, um, and then HIV uh, treatment and PrEP as well. Um, and with a referral to the pharmacotherapy clinic, then those pharmacists um, are, are kind of well-trained at identifying um, both right drug clinically um, and in this space of really high cost drugs, um, kind of insurance coverage or avenues to get the right drug um, for, for the patient. And then in many cases, because a lot of these medications require administration in clinic, such as Prolia for osteoporosis or such as cabotegravir for PrEP or some of our um, other options require more monitoring and ensuring adherence, then they support all that, similar to how they have been doing for, for years with anti-COAG clinic in terms of uh, supporting monitoring and treat follow-up and um, uh, adjustments as needed. Great, thank you, Dr. Fry. Given the benefit of time, I may <laughs> ask you one more question, perhaps a bit yeah. similar. Um, you acknowledge the need for prior authorizations probably for several of these medications, mm -hmm. um, which is increasingly back in the medical home for our patients as well. Um, any particular words of wisdom for the physicians mm -hmm. or the teams as we're approaching prior authorizations to streamline the process? Ooh, that's the million dollar question these days with the Providence Medical Group, I know. Um, I think my best pieces of advice would be using our resources in Epic. Um, many uh, insurance companies um, are now what I call talking to Epic and allowing um, a real-time benefit check at the time of prescribing in order to identify um, not only is a drug covered, but is covered um, actually affordable for the patient. Um, so many times when I'm um, talking about a GLP-1 agonist or an SGLT-2, um, if, even if it's covered, that might still mean a big cost share to the patient, which might not mean it's affordable. So I think those um, uh, resources in EPIC to identify, is it covered, is it affordable? Um, and now it will also, it also show you if a PA is required, um, which can, I think from a provider's standpoint, can help with that conversation with the patient, letting them know that PA is going to be required, letting them know that's not going to be an immediate, like send to the pharmacy pickup um, later today, um, and can set up your the rest of the support staff to, to complete that um, PA. I wish there was, I wish, uh, you know, there was more direct advice to give you, um, but as as we all know, it really is so payer dependent that there's not a one size fits all approach with with uh, these high cost drugs when when a PA is required. Great. Well, thank you so much um, for teaching us today, Dr. Fry, correcting some of our dogma with regard to prior <laughs> prescribing and learning um, new cutting edge topics. So we so appreciate your support of our education. Thank you.